And welcome in, Wyoming Knuckleheads. This is another episode of Go Be Wyoming. I'm your host, Aaron Gray, and I've got my co-host, Zach Gale, on the board today. We've got Carter Wells running the cameras, making yeah. us look good. Um, <laughs> and today, our special guest is Sam Morton, author of Where the Rivers Run North. Sam, have you written any other books? I should have known this. Should have done our research on our guest here. <laughs> uh, the Land of the Horse, uh, The Art and Photography of Absarta was the second book that is... Um, deals with the photographs and artwork we couldn't put in the novel. Where okay. Rivers Run North. And that's a coffee table book. You get that at the library. And then my last book was uh, first of about a series of books called The Wing Spur about this wild clan of people from southern Scotland on the English border that raid across into... England steal cattle and horses and they just form clans it's and they went on for generations so and then they back Robert the Bruce and William Wallace and and quite a history and then they shipped them to Ireland to calm the Irish so they didn't have to use their own army and then now I'm my new book which is called American Annandale is not out yet I'm just finishing it it's going to be that family of Scots when they get to Pennsylvania and they land right in the middle of the French and Indian War. Oh, wow. So it's when the French destroyed the British Army on the frontier where Pittsburgh is today and then just left the Pennsylvania settlers like, good luck to you. So there's about nine tribes of Indians that are just raiding through Pennsylvania to get three free stuff. Yeah. And scalps. And so these Scots were left alone. So they banded together and kind of defended the frontier. Oh, wow. It was like 2,000 people killed in their homes on that raid. And they were the, and then, and then it's kind of the precursor of the American Revolution. Sure. It'll be the next right. book. Oh, wow. How'd you get roped in? Because that's kind of a spread of history there. I mean, the, Native American, you know, uh, the Indian Wars, I guess you sh you would say, but uh, the Frontier War, and then now you're doing kind of a revolutionary war. That's kind of a spread of history there. Sure. I started <laughs> out just writing sort of for a, I don't want to say, uh, but it's a polo publication for the sport of polo. And what happened was somebody attacked the horse people in this community and said they're a bunch of drug adled trash that, you know, and so they said, if we gave you $50, would you write a rebuttal to this guy? And I said, no, I'm not going to fight your fight for you. But then I read what he said, and he was making light of somebody's kid getting killed. The kid died of an overdose in a nightclub, but this guy said he did it in on the polo field. And I thought, that's a lope. You don't bring that kind of stuff up. Yeah. And so I said, yeah, I'll write it. So <laughs> I attacked this newspaper publisher. And evidently the publisher liked what I wrote. And so she gave me a gig to write every month. Another lady read it. She didn't get along with the first lady. She offered me a hundred to write for her. The other one got mad. And then somebody else offered me 150 if I don't write for her. So it was kind <laughs> of a Forrest Gump thing. But I've always been interested in history because my dad always, he'd always take me to historical sites. And I like to read. I read a lot of great books especially where I'm at now about the uh, American Revolution and more on the side of in the West, in the frontier, not 
where we are, but Western Pennsylvania, Western North Carolina, where the Scots-Irish, the people that are the clans back in the hills mm -hmm. that settled away from the government were fighting the Indians while George Washington was fighting the British. Yeah. So... I've always been interested in that. And then I would sneak in a historical article in these polo magazines. Maybe that it could be the town, how that town was founded where they play polo. So a gentleman read it, Ski Johnston, who owns a Flying H Ranch and the Flying H Polo Club. And he's got quite a history to him. His grandmother was a historian, and, and he... He had dinner with two people, Bob Tate and B. Buff from this area. And he said, Sam, they're not gonna be around forever. We need to get their history. So he said, if we publish the book, would you be interested in writing, getting their story and we'll put it in a book? And I was like, holy jeebers, you know? I was like, this book's gonna come out whether it's any good or not. So I just went around and, and he gave all the money to the book to the historical society. Okay. You know, all the profits went to the historical society and then he gave him a big chunk of cash too. So sure. you know, he wasn't in it to make money or anything. He was just in it to um, you know, uh save history. And so I had so much help from local people. Oh, uh, people that are uh um, they're. It's the ghost of Miss Kate from across the street. <laughs> from across the street, there, yeah. She's still mad at me for something I did in the Sheridan Inn thirty years ago. Anyway, this guy, he, he um, Ski Johnston, uh, and he does a lot for this community. He's very low under the radar. He doesn't like put his name on a lot of things, but. He had backed me in this, and then I just had help fall in my lap from everywhere. I got 3,000 letters, and, and, and it was my—he didn't give me any parameters. He never gave me a deadline. It took me seven years to write it. Wow. And when people give me a hard time about that, they're like, you know, I said, well, all you need to know about that seven years is I did just over 6,000 head of horse's teeth. Because I'm a horse dentist. That's what I do. So it wasn't like I was sitting around looking out the window. I was coming home <laughs> dragging your knuckles. So I, no more drinking, no TV, no internet, no nothing. And I just worked on my book on a Word document on a computer that wasn't on the internet. Yeah. Um, so uh, it took me seven years and all this great help. Irv Alderson, I said, what am I going to name this thing? I had these horrendous names. <laughs> And he didn't put any, I said, I'm going to take this back to the Indians. Because these two people, B. Buff and Bob Tate, nothing alike. One was from a high-end family from New York City that moved out here in the early 1900s. And the other one was a, 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 a horse trader who spent his whole life figuring out how to sell wealthy people horses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was a little bit of a Huckleberry Finn type guy. And... B. Buff was a very proper sort of, you know, and so there wasn't a lot of common ground. It was like writing about Mother Teresa and Mussolini as I know them, you know, they don't <laughs> belong in the same book. But I, I kind of took it back and I, I was very interested in Western history. So I, I took it back and it, it somehow worked out. I was given a trunk of letters of the Earl of Portsmouth that lived in Bighorn and he was a state senator. 
and he was this kind of good-hearted, uh, stuttering, absent-minded guy that got a lot done. It was crazy energy to the guy. Mm-hmm. He used to ride over to Thermopolis just to, for his arthritis on a horse in the dead of winter. You know, and then he'd forget his coat and about freeze to death and shiver <laughs> under a tree. And, you know, most people die when that happens. But, uh, and that's yeah. a, that was Wallop, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's the great grandfather of, of the Wallops around here. Mm-hmm. Malcolm Wallop, the senator, that was his grandfather. Yeah. They're a very nice family. And they gave me, some of the family gave me 3,000 of his letters. Wow. To his wife from 1884 to 1926, from Miles City down here. And so a lot of my history concerning the horses was early in Miles City. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it came down into here. So he was around Buffalo Bill and, you know, and, and then I took it back to Crazy Horse for no, no other reason that Crazy Horse was in a lot of the historical battles around here. Yep. And so I thought I'd tell it through his eyes. Yeah. Which is an interesting sort of a way to do it. And then I had a lady that's a, she's a publisher over in Grable, and she said, you should take a horse's bloodline through it. So I was all over the place, like uh, Joe Medicine Crow. I was in Mile City. I was on the reservation. I was on these old ranchers that were in World War II. And I talked to one gentleman that was, uh, he was in the wild horse roundup. They called it the, when there was tens of thousands of wild horses running around. Mm -hmm. And it's, they would go around in the summer and camp out on the ground and corral these horses, set traps for them and geld them. You know, yep. it's quite a skill you would have to have to do that compared to cows. I mean, a horse loose is hard to catch on another horse. Mm-hmm. You'd have to be, and it was an operation called the CBC out of Mile City. So that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. we Zach and I know, because I know Zach and I are at least halfway through it. And yeah. um, that first part definitely covers everything that Sam just said. Highly recommend. Yeah. Well, and Aaron and I had talked about that a little bit too, that, that first part of the book, like you said, bringing it back to crazy horse and kind of telling that through his eyes. And, um, I really appreciated that. Um, so I graduated from Montana state university just this past month. Um, and I'm an education major, sec, uh, social studies. So I take a whole bunch of kind of Montana native American studies classes. Um, and so it was cool to see all these things that I knew connecting kind of both sides of history that I've just learned throughout my life and see you know, them come through in your story. It was really, really cool to see how you worked that narrative, but then also the, the history into it. It was, it was really, it was cool. It was really fun to read. Yeah. yeah and that, that's, that's good to hear. I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping to do that. You know, it's, um, I got in a sort of a mental battle with myself. Otherwise I was going to make it straight history or narrative. And I mm-hmm. said, nah, every good book on history I've ever read is a narrative. Yeah. And also, and then you bring it up with certain historians and they're like, oh, that's crap. That's not real history, you know? And I'm like, oh my God. And so I just, I went that way anyway. Yeah. And I also thought if I want to make it on this one book, it's going to be one chance. It's never going to happen. Do I want to make it as a writer or a historian? Yeah. And horse historians tend to fight so bad anyway. <laughs> you know, they really do. Yeah. And there's some great, and my f- good friend who I spent time downstairs in this building with lots of times, 
And he uh, ran Fort Phil Kearney. His name's Sonny Reich. Brilliant guy. Really smart. He, he should have him on here. He's yeah, very Phil Carney, that'd be good. And really funny, too. Yeah. I mean, that guy is hilarious. <laughs> but he's got kind of two sides to him. But he knows history inside and out. And he was so great. You know, he would tell me stuff like, I'm like, Sonny, I got this book, and it says this is spelled this way. And the other one's like, and he's like, wow, just stick with one and stick with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not a lot of historians. I mean, most tell you that. historians would say, Oh, you have to do, you know, and it, yep, it, yeah. it just, he tends to see the big picture on things. And it, yeah. it was really nice to have him in your corner because yeah. he's a established historian, you know, and right. he knew me when I was a little kid up at Teepee running around with a chew of tobacco and a Coors beer in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> what a great segue. Cause I was just about to ask you, Sam, cause you're not, um, because you're not a Wyoming native, correct? But you were out here a lot in your childhood. Is that right? No, I was just kind of, uh, um, I grew up in Southern Pines, North Carolina. And somehow being a Southern kid that could ride horses just fit perfectly. You know, we hunted and fished and I immediately made friends. And the funny story, these little kids are fishing, you know, and I'm fishing and we had bass and catfish and they're hunting trout, you know, and I can remember watching these guys catch these trout and they appeared to be getting ready to cook them. And I go, you ain't going to scale them trout? Like, they don't have scales. I'm like, no way. Like, <laughs> I thought I'd invented gold or something. Yeah. <laughs> and you go back to North Carolina, go, they got fish with no scales in Wyoming. You know? These people are looking at me like, oh, brother. They seem to get a kick out of me. So it was, I made a lot of friends out here and I would go back and forth to school. And then I moved out here and then I got to work on a lot of big ranches that don't exist anymore as they were they kept a lot of horses you know the new way is cowboy ways you know four-wheeler mm -hmm. but <laughs> a lot of people kept big horse herds so i figured out real early working on dude ranches that it's better to be in a saddle than on the bad end of a shovel on a ranch so i sort of was my ambition to be a horse breaker and I took a clinic and immediately had these great ranch jobs with they hadn't gotten around to breaking their horses so they have everything from eight-year-olds to three-year-olds at 40 head of horses at in Wyarno is a ranch called the WS and the pony track Henry Burgess who has a great history in its own but um, that was a real honor to work out there. And I broke 40 horses there. And then the NX bar, mm -hmm. which is a hunting kind of wounded warrior thing. Uh, now it's a great establishment, but I was out there and that was, these ranches are tens of thousands of acres. And to be 23 years old and they leave you alone riding horses, you know, no, they're not going to pull you off the stack hay or anything. So it was the best job in the world. One November I was, it was snowing on me and, uh, we're moving cattle. We've been moving cattle down the road, and this rent-a-Cadillac pulls up and spills all our cattle, and this lady jumps out in a mink stall in the snow, and she looks at me and says, uh, your brother tells me you'd like to go to Florida and train horses for us. I'm like, oh. I just got off and handed my boss the reins yep, <laughs> right now. <laughs> no, nah, I don't need money. That's okay. Anyway, that's how that started. And I went back every year and sort yeah. of had some interesting things. But yeah, I grew up in North Carolina and uh, some of my friends, Sonny included, he always called me the <laughs> unreconstructed rebel, you know, and I said, 
Sonny, if it wasn't for Southern people, there wouldn't be anybody out here other than bankers and lawyers. <laughs> you, had have, you had to have somebody digging the ditches. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's how I got out here anyway. My mother came out in 1930. Okay. So she had a dude ranch. You know, she was one of that. So yep. and my brother, had a, he's 15 years older than me. He ran the corral at Teepee. So I got to be, they'd give me some kind of little chores to do, you know, and... It was quite the wonderland for a for a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, you're living in the bunkhouse with 21-year-olds and 18-year-olds and probably was grew up a little quick, but I had a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just you've kind of mentioned a couple. Is there any other big ranches that you'd like to mention that you spent time at? So TP, NX Bar, uh, SW. Spiro, I had Spiro. a pack string at Spiro working for Archie McCarty when the uh, the people from New York named Reams owned it. And that was a great job. Yeah. I have a camp called The Sessions, right? Yep. The yep. Sessions have that now, and that's great. Uh, they, they went through kind of a lull, Spiro, but it's such a neat area. And they have a great wilderness camp mm -hmm. called Beaver Lakes. And I spent a lot of time there. That was the best job in the world. Yep. And I just take people and we'd be gone for a week. And then you, because you, you look at your, you know, I would look at Archie and say, I didn't get a day off like everybody else. Your whole trip is a day off. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> he'd say, okay, you can have a whole day off. And you'd go down Friday night and, you know, go to the Mint and run around, go to Eaton's and mm -hmm. all day long. And then the next night, and then you didn't want to go back to town for another day. I'm another month rather. But yeah. Limp back up to red grade. But th th this is, you know, writing this book was sort of in the back of my mind was the people that grew up here. I was able to find out some stuff that I just thought it, it would just be really cool for them to know about this stuff. And and Ski Johnston gave me the ability or push or enable me to be able to do that, mm -hmm. you know. And so I met some great people and great stories. I could go on for hours about that, but it, it just helped me with this book. I had so much help. You know, those letters were a godsend. Yeah. It's, it's a, nobody'd read them except for me and Mrs. Wallop. And, you know, I'm transcribing some of them now on a, like a Word document so they'll be out. But, you know, they went to a a meeting in England, Wallop and Moncrief. Moncrief owned the Polo Ranch. Right. And they married sisters, Wallop and Moncrief, and they're very wealthy sisters. So they, they took full, of, you know, advantage of that opportunity. But anyway, they were in England and they were, the Britain was going to war with the Dutch in South Africa. And they needed horses, a lot of horses, like a, a hundred thousand horses. So Wallops said, "Well, we got twenty thousand in Wyoming. We could get you." And they go, "You got twenty thousand horses in Wyoming?" Like, sure, absolutely. Well, Wallop had just unloaded three thousand horses because he said, "There's never going to be a market for these horses," and he just dumped them. Two years later, he gets a contract for twenty thousand. Right. <laughs> so they walk out of that meeting going, "Man, we got to find some horses." Yeah. So I've had letters from, and a lot of those are in this book. They went from Omaha, Nebraska, to Ontario, Oregon. Every little railroad stop, and he put an ad in the paper and bought horses. Then they brought twenty. 
22,000 to Sheridan on a train. Not all at once, but they would come in train loads, and then they would herd them to Bighorn, and the British buyers would look at them. And these were, and that's kind of the birth of the saddle bronc riders in this community because all you had to do to sell your horse was trot it the length of a polo field away from the buck. He didn't ride it. You had your guy ride it. Yep. He had some good cowboys around this area back we're talking 1899 through 1901 so they god knows what they did with these outlaw horses you know yeah to get them so <laughs> we'll sell them so they they were buying them for around 20 dollars a head and reselling them for 140 some of them would get bought for 40 um and they went to south africa and think of the logistics of feeding those horses mm-hmm. and shoeing them yeah and they said the shoers were just up and down the streets and shared shoeing these horses because, and then I thought, they, they let the horse, you know, it makes more sense to shoe them and let the horse carry them over there than put them in boxes. Yeah. So everybody was making money. People were selling hay to keep, you know. Yep. Keep so I have that. his letters on every little stop, you know. That's awesome. And yeah. Deadwood, if you've ever seen that show, Deadwood. Mm-hmm. And there's a letter with him and Deadwood buying horses. And he signed off his letter. He said, this town is Sodom and Gomorrah, and I don't want to get salted. <laughs> Probably still true today. A little yeah, bit. absolutely. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, just I wanted to ask you about the research that went into this. Um, and you've touched on it a little bit. It's a lot of primary sources and, and a lot of, uh, you know, generous donations for from these families to uh, help you tell this story. But um, have you sifted through all of those? Or, you know, I, I guess uh, you get 3,000 letters. And then, what you know, what kind of do you do next? I think well, you'd have a little sensory overload. What you do with those letters, I mean, I, I, I'm not the most focused person in the world. But you have to be disciplined enough to go, wow, who's this Churchill dude? Let me look him up. No, stick to the horses. So I tried to have the common thread with the horse. (laughs) And uh, that seemed to work. Because both those people that I originally interviewed, and, you know, I was very worried that Ski Johnston wasn't going to like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was... That's my main, and and then the people you're writing about wouldn't like it. They're very forgiving. This book has so many errors in it, misspellings. I mean, it was my first time, and then about page, you can go on Amazon. Somebody wrote a review saying, after page 284, the book falls apart. But, (laughs) you know, it's true because I had collected all these little short anecdote stories, people's lives, and then I combed it through and made it the story of Crazy Horse, the story of Nal Wallop. And then it was going to be Edith Gallatin and Bob Tate, but I never got to, it's a long story, but I never got to comb through this kind of last third of the book. So that never got written. If, you, if you're if you in World War II, you can see that by now. It's It's like a little kind of, it's kind of broken into little, it doesn't flow as well. Okay. But I'm not complaining because the book did well better than I thought it would ever do. And for a self-published book and, you know, it's, it's, I thought they printed 10,000 hardbacks 
And I thought, those things will be hanging around for the next 100 years. <laughs> you know? And I thought, if we sell 500, we'll get lucky. And it sold 10,000 in five years. Yeah. And it, it it was, they told me it's outsold everything they've had at the Sheridan Stationery, which yep. is closed now. Mm-hmm. Just but those sold. guys were so yeah. nice. Yeah. They put it like up on the counter with the little awards on it that it won some yep. minor, minor awards. <laughs> so when you walked in that store, it was right there. Yep. Yeah. And so we, they were very kind. Robbie and John Smith are the best. You yep. Know? We, uh, I think we might have bought their last paperbacks and well, they were signed ones of really? yours. Yeah. So, <laughs> but awesome. yeah, no, I know exactly. That's right up top. They had all the things up there, but, uh, um, I know what you're saying. It's not a, not that it falls apart, but I, I can see what you're saying about the stories. You know, you'd like to focus on Bob Tate. Yeah. The and, stories are yeah. still good, but I wanted to tell them through Bob to like I did, you know, yep. Um, like Noel and crazy. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it worked out okay. You know, and you know, critics are going to be critics. Yep. Absolutely. And, um, I've had some funny stories dealing with that. And so, and you know, some guy wrote this book ruined my camping trip to Montana. Or oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're on a camping trip in Montana. Yeah. At least taking the Keeps sights. Keeps the parakeets here. happy. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Bottom of the cage. <laughs> oh, man. Jeez. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit, Sam, about, so kind of grew up out here, got your early taste of, uh, were you were you considered a horse breaker then, um, or I didn't really start breaking horses till I was about nineteen, eighteen, fifteen. Okay. I took a Ray Hunt clinic and I immediately had fifty horses lined up to break. Sure, and I just taken this clinic, and it went it went great. I mean, there was a couple wild weeks where I'd forgotten one step of the thing, and I figured that out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool though because it served me well in Florida because when I went down there I was the only guy that knew how to get on a horse like you know it was a horse community that had not been messed with you know like up here they don't want the, I'm on the tail end of the old cowboy the ranch and they they give you a horse if it's never been touched it's just a wild animal it's never been had a halter put on it that thing will run you over in this room you know you couldn't come up to it you just roped it mm-hmm. got it in a corral but there's a knack to it and i learned that from ray hunt and um you know buck Branneman's carried that over he's 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 does that he's made a good career out of that and he he instructs people he's got a way with teaching people which i've never been that great with that you know i always just the horses you know and mm-hmm. the money would be in teaching people you know you're not gonna make any money breaking horses i mean it's like being a janitor as far as your pay you could get lucky but then you get areas where you don't have any to break or you know it's it's feast or famine but the way that it was was you get on them the first day you know they're not paying you to do groundwork well back east they'll they'll mess with them for 30 days which is a good way but it ain't the way they wanted here for the most part. Mm-hmm. So you first first three days are pretty wild. Yeah. But then you, you just get on them the first day and let them run around the corral and nothing on their head. You're just like a monkey riding a sheepdog, basically. <laughs> but you pet them and, and you get them tired. You rope them a lot and, they, you know, and let them run around. And they just like kids. They get tired. And then you... When when you approach them, it's all good. You just pet them, and then 
they want to run away, you just keep them running. The only easy way is to stop and let me pet you. Mm -hmm. If they want to take off again, just keep letting them run, you know, 10,000 times around the corral. And on days like today, it's, by the way, here, wherever we're going to, this is going to come out, but this is a very hot day in Sheridan, Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And I remember breaking horses and wiring. It was 107 for two weeks. Ooh. And I'm like, glory, hallelujah, because there's four horses I don't want to get on the first time. And I would saddle them before lunch, go in the AC, eat lunch. They're standing out in 107 with a saddle on. So I thought maybe this will be a fair fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it works. Yeah. <laughs> There's an art to it. Yeah. yeah. And so I went down to Florida and I got as a trainer. Um, you know, my history as far as, as Wyoming is I've just fell in love with Wyoming when I was 10 years old. And it's... It's, uh, it's been something I always come back to mm -hmm. and I've always come back to Wyoming. I went five years in Florida where I just stayed down there and trained horses. And I just said, I'm never doing that again. You know, um, it's amazing what's happened around here with the polo club. They have the biggest polo club in the world now. Oh, wow. In the world, in the summer. You know, for a summer club, yeah, sure. there's nowhere in Europe or South America or anywhere that has as many people playing. And that was all Ski Johnson. He built the Flying H. So the Bighorn Polo Club, which is right next to it, they're all feeding off the Flying H. Right. So all these horse trainers come in to sell horses to the people that buy horses on the on the high end of right. it. So it's been a great opportunity for everybody. But you get 250 people coming out. That's 250 wives, 250 grooms, kids. Mm -hmm. It's a big chunk of people for Bighorn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They all got to live somewhere. Yep. And these people spend money, too, you know. Yep. So, Bringing in a couple horses. It and I always try and, you know, because I, yeah, I live in Florida half the year because I do my horse dentistry down there. And... I always try, if I need a set of tires or something, I always try and buy my cars up here or tires up here or just support the area, you know? Yeah. Um, That's awesome. We're at a, at a, I mean, I recognize what's happening here because of what happened to that town in Florida. There was 1,200 people there when I went there. And the horse people found it, and it it's 60,000 now. Ooh. And that's since 82. It was about the size of Buffalo. Right. And the high end, you know, but it's next to Palm Beach, so the, you don't quite have that draw here. But um, it's so beautiful out here, and I could never figure out why people didn't move here. They just hadn't found it. Mm -hmm. So, like, I've been to Hilton, and one summer I went to Steamboat, Sun Valley, Aspen, Jackson, and I absolutely hated it. I hated every one of those towns. I just wanted to come back to Sheridan. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I was probably in my 30s, early 30s, and I was working in each one of those towns because right. I knew polo people from Florida, and then they'd scatter, and then they'd get me business doing their horse's teeth. But I was like, God, this is horrible. And Colorado, even worse. I mean, when I was 19, I went to Colorado for the summer and worked on a dude ranch just because when you're that age you want to see different places yeah I mean you're like hey I want to go California see what that's about I went down there and those people were so sour on tourism hmm. you know they were like we don't want anybody moving up here and we don't want 
And, you know, and I said, well, I came down here from Wyoming. And they're like, oh, well, Wyoming's cool, but we don't. And I go, well, <laughs> did you go to high school here? And they go, no, but I've lived here for five years. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, and I, <laughs> I was working at a barn in my hometown in, in Southern Pines, and a veterinarian jumped up and said, we don't appreciate you out-of-town people coming in here. <laughs> I grew up across, my dad's farm was across the yeah. street. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow. And she was from England. And I was like, oh, but I just, Sheridan people aren't like that. Yeah. You know, they're the nicest people. And I, you know, I think Sean quoted me at one point as saying, you know, and I, I've always said that, you know, Wyoming's testimony to what human beings are capable of if you give them enough space. You know, if you give people enough space, people tend to be better people, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, I've always loved this area. And then, you know, I thought, God, these are the friendliest. When I would come out here in May, I'd be like... These are the friendliest people I've ever been around. They think these people really like me. And then I realized after a couple of winters, I'm like, well, they're just happy they didn't winter kill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works. They're just glad to see the sunshine. Yep, yep. They're glad to see anybody. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and then they're mad about the 100-degree weather we're going to have tomorrow or yeah, whatever. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And you know, the great part of, I mean, I can remember when it's the uh, heat spells in Sheridan and you'd be going to the movies, like at the Centennial there and that sidewalk would just cook you standing in line. Yep. Because for whatever reason, there used to be lines in the movies on the weekend, right? Yeah. Probably still is, right? Maybe not. They got <laughs> four theaters now or yeah. five or six. Yeah. But anyway, I remember standing out that I just felt like I was standing in a frying pan. Mm -hmm. But the great thing about Sheridan is... When you come out at nine o'clock, it's really nice. Yes. Yeah. It's not hot at all. And I'm, it's not like that in other places. Mm -hmm. You walk outside in the dark in Florida. First of all, you better not step on anything. Yeah. Because there's... <laughs> there's critters down there. 17-foot <laughs> <Yeah>. Burmese pythons <laughs> waiting for nighttime to crawl out of the canals. <laughs> oh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just... I used to live in a barn here, and I could sleep. I was training for college here to play football in college. And I worked half a day. I'd eat a huge lunch because I was trying to gain weight and then take a nap. And you couldn't sleep in a house with no AC after two in the afternoon. And you just wake up in a sweat. And then i go lift weights. But by six o'clock, if you'd open everything up and let the hot air out, yep, this is a great, this is the best place on earth. I mean, I wish people could appreciate the fall but the same reason people get anxious about the fall here is the same reason people get anxious about the spring in Florida. Because you go, man, it's great here in the spring. And the people in Florida are going, yeah, but summer's coming. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the fall here, it's like, yeah, but winter's coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. It's. I spent two winters here riding outside all day. Yeah. And it was it was an experience. But one thing you get here, you don't get anywhere. You sure don't get it in, in the Black Hills or in northern Montana. There's a little strip that goes from prior, I'm just roughly, the east side of the Bighorns, which we're on. It runs along the Bighorns, the east side, from prior down to about KC. It's about 50 miles wide and about two. And they get as much, you guys get as much sunshine per 
daily sunshine mm-hmm. as anywhere in the United States, South California. And I got to thinking, I thought, it is sunny here in the winter. Yeah. Yep. But I spent a winter in Cleveland, Ohio, and when you don't see the sun for two months. Oh, man. And I thought, God, Sheridan. But I never thought about that, but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you always get sunshine. I mean, it might be freezing outside, but there's a lot to be said for having sunshine. Yeah. So yeah, for that's me, true. that's a huge bonus of this area. Yep. And you don't really appreciate it until you don't have sunshine. Right. With Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, New York, if you want to get, you know, Portland, Seattle, those people don't see the sun all winter. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that makes people so good to get along with here is the sunshine. I don't know. Yeah. I think Brianne Beasley said, uh, we're like in a banana belt here, which uh, it's like, in yeah. A way, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> what kind of bananas he's eating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then. Uh, I must have had two bad winters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, the little uh, ridge you see, Moncrief Ridge, that's another neat thing is it's almost neater to see the bighorns from Sheridan. And we have this view of that canyon. Right. If you go to Ranchester or Dayton, the mountains don't look like that. Mm-hmm. That's a unique canyon. And that's kind of the hub of that book, too. Yep. I mean, the, the book starts with an Indian riding out of a canyon, out of Little Goose Canyon. Yep. And uh, if you go to Story, it doesn't look like that. But that canyon is just special. And uh, it holds, like you said, it's, it's it holds, there's a thermal deal. So if you're on the face up on the red grade where those houses are, I got up there one day and I'm like, well, it's not that cold. We're supposed to work cattle. I thought, instead of go to the bunkhouse and change, I'll just go straight to the cattle chutes. And we were bangs vaccinating and I just had a shirt on. By the time I got out to Wyarno, it's like 60 degrees colder. <laughs> so there's a little thermal something going on in that canyon sometimes. Right. But you're right. Yeah. I'm going through that, the AC thing right now where our AC went out. So the whole, yeah, but it gets hot right at that two o'clock time. Yep. But then right when six, seven rolls around, you can open the windows up and then it cools off. Yep. So I know. I, my first three years in Florida, I never had an air conditioner. Probably the first, yeah, five years down there, summers, no AC. And you see people that don't have AC where they hang their arm out the window, you know, of your car, and it will take the whatever out of your skin and sweat and take the paint off your car where your arm is. It's like you drink water and you just feel it running out of you. It's like it's still coming out of me. Yeah. The bottom of your feet are sweating. Your, your your Levi's are soaking wet if you get up at five in the morning and just put grain in the buckets for the horses. You haven't yep, even gone to sweating, work. yeah. Yeah. And then the sun comes up and the ground's soaking wet and it's just like a sauna. So <laughs> we don't have that here. Yeah. yeah. No, no. <laughs> Luckily. <Yeah. laughs> um, talk about going to uh, dentistry school. I never went to dentistry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like Doc Holliday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I um, actually, why I know, um, my, an old cowboy came up to me and I had was on those 40 horses and he said, did you do their teeth? And I said, no, do their teeth. And he goes, yeah, that's their first introduction to a bit. 
and their teeth are sharp. And you pull that bit to pull their cheek back in the tooth, it'll slice them open. And that's their first introduction to learning how to have a bit in their mouth. So it causes pain. So Greg McCarty, a friend of mine, that his, his grandfather owned the NX bar, we got a bottle of drugs and some horseshoe files and went through them as good as we could. My brother had shown me the basics. And then when I went to, uh, I, I took a job in Midland, Texas, one winter, training horses. And a guy had gone to school, and he was kind of a kind of a lazy cowboy, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, anyway, he paid me $5 a head, and he'd smoke cigarettes, and he kind of showed me. Right. Just as a layman, you know, and it showed me how to do the finer port, so I learned that. And then when I went to Florida, when I ended up in the polo office, people knew I did teeth because somebody would say, you know how to do that? Will you do my horse? And I'm like, yeah, you don't have to pay me. You know, and so pretty soon got out. I was doing $150 work for free. Right. <laughs> and uh, But no one told you yet. Well, I didn't go to business school either. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I, it went to me doing like a thousand head in the winter. And then the veterinarians down there hired me to do their work. They showed me surgery and some things, and, 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 and I just got so much experience. And you're always learning. I yeah. try and keep up with it. But I, I answer your question. I've never gone to school, and now they made it illegal for me to work without a vet. Sure. So I always work with a vet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or in... Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one's going to uh, rat you out. No, that's, I think that's, um, you know, we had Tom Balding in, and that was kind of the same thing, like, get experience, you know, and learn, and then, you know. Yeah, he's that, very talented. You know, it's same thing, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of his work was welding fabrication, and that nowadays is you got to have a license or certification, Um something to think about. It's something Zach and I, have, we haven't really talked about, but, um, you know, that's kind of going from to the wayside, you know, you got to get the certification instead of how about you get 10, 15 right. years of experience, you know? Yes. And you also have, you know, I mean, in anything, if you get successful at what you're doing as a free agent outside the system, like podcast somebody's going to come along and mm -hmm. take your business some big somebody that they're like they're making way too much money and I think you're making too much money it's like that's too much money for those guys <laughs> right so yeah the big guys are looking at it so i mean that's that's kind of what happened with with um dentistry you know some guys are cool. like well, he's making way too much money which i'm not because i'm not a businessman but <laughs> you know i've i've um I love to write. I love to read. And I, I thank my dad for making me read good books. And I've tried so hard to get my son, who just got out of high school, going to college, to read more. Because, gosh, there's nothing like a good book. You know, when I, I got in, uh, I was just in Franklin, Tennessee, working with teeth. And I'm working on my book wherever I go. And I was in a sentence that said, Southern Literature. And all of a sudden, it just, I said, that's what I want to be, Southern letters, <laughs> writing about the West <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the Scots. But um, this book, the book I'm writing now is going to end up in Pocatello, Idaho, because this guy came in the frontier. Okay. He made a ton of money. And 
he went back to Tennessee with all this money because they were right where the Oregon Trail splits. And these were educated kids, kind of go-getters. They just kind of like you guys. And they saw an opportunity and they go, what if they're getting ready to put a town at the forks of the railroad tracks and they just bought it from the Indians. What if we bought up all the tracks early where this town's going mm-hmm. and they don't have a bank. So what if we put the first bank in and the biggest mercantile? So they had people back East that would back them. Right. I mean, it was a gamble. Yep. But this guy came back after making so much. He was a 21-year-old bank president in Pocatello, Idaho. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he came back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and these two lawyers had come back from the Spanish-American War with this idea to take this syrup that they sold in the drugstores. And, and back then, you would always go in the drugstores to get a drink. North Carolina, we call pops drinks. It's kind of a strange area. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's say, let's go get a drink. That means you're going to get a grape or a, or a Pepsi or a Coke or a you know Mountain Dew. We call them drinks. So you had to get them in a fountain with ice, you know, in a drugstore. That's where the drinks were. And this guy, these two lawyers said, what if we asked these people if we could put their soda or pop in a bottle and see if we could sell it? And the the, the type was Mm Coca-Cola. So this guy came back as a young man with all this money from Idaho. He made on the bank. And he backed them, and he had the first franchise bottler. And then I'm learning about how Coca-Cola was done. It was some guy in the back, like of this building with a fire and a cauldron, and just stirring it with a big (laughs) paddle. And he would sell that to the drugstores. So eventually they got salesmen and went to every hot place in the United States, Phoenix, Southern California, where people... Need refreshments. Of course, back then it had cocaine in it, and that that really got people amped up. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. (laughs) Easy to sell then, I think. (laughs) Okay, boys, time for a Coke break. Back to work. Yep, yep. (laughs) Anyway, um, this guy who lives here now, he kind of revolutionized how bottling was done, and he thought of it before anybody else did, before any bottler did and, and and the idea was if you have these little bottling plants and I remember when I was a kid every little Sheridan had one everybody my, my hometown North Carolina you had these bottles going by and the old guy would pull out the ones with a chip and you'd get deposits and that's how you got your candy money when you're a little kid so this um, this guy said instead of having just thinking big and gambling instead of having a bottling plant in every plant why don't we just have one central plant with one huge bottling thing that'll bottle everything beer coke you know mountain dew whatever and then we'll just use all these other plants as warehouses right and the profits went through the ceiling so they hired him to run the whole company and he brought his own people in and turned the whole business around and that's the guy that, um, that's Ski Johnston that did this book. 
But what he did is give me his grandmother had this history of the Scots. Okay. So I'm writing that history now. This is fascinating. The Civil War is amazing. Yeah. He had a great grandmother who was the only family that were allowed to stay. When it's like Sheridan, Sheridan seventeen thousand, right? Yeah. 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 Roughly. Yep. If you're not Chattanooga, Tennessee was five thousand, but it had railroad lines. Well, thirty thousand Confederate troops came in. You can imagine what that would do to a town. Yeah. And her dad was a provost marshal and then the union troops came in the southern troops left and there was 40,000 union troops so I mean how would you feel about living in your house when there's 40,000 and the guy went up he was a mason and he said hey my family's here my mother's here she's sick if she goes outside this town there's a bunch of bandits preying on people Mm -hmm. that have to leave so could you please let her stay in her house so they put guards on the house and I have her Recollection: These huge bloody battles happen right outside of town, like Chickamauga, Lookout Mountain. So I'm telling the same kind of stories with that as I did where the rivers run north. Awesome. About the Union, the Confederates, and yeah. they were all in it, you know. And they were couriers in the American Revolution for, you know, when yeah. George Washington was in Valley Forge. That's smart enough, you know. You'd yep. Better to be sending messages back and forth and be stuck in the front lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's we're wintering awesome. at Valley Forge too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Looks cold here, boys. I'll see you at the lodge. <laughs> <Yeah. Right. laughs> I'm going for brandy. I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> no, that's awesome, and that that's such a unique perspective too of those of those conflicts too. You know, like you said, uh, the Revolution, looking at the Scots, you know, fighting the Indians. Um, everybody wants to see the. the Americans fighting the British, but you forget about those little things right. that are going on on the side. Right. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. And I'm trying to do that and, and, and doing things that people don't think about is, is, you know, the girl that's in the house at 16 years old has a totally different perspective on an occupied and it's firsthand information that's never been really told. It was this woman had preserved it, the family, that a nine-year-old little brother would be adventure for him. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. he's running down to the soldiers' camps going, hey, you guys got anything to eat? Because they were all starving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you get the, you know, there was three women in the house, and you're in an occupied army, so you got that to deal with. And... um you know, which you're trying to protect them against anything. And then you've got this little kid running around thinking it's just this whole thing's great. And he found a goat that gave milk. So he's trading that milk for anything. Yep. You know, he's become a businessman. And so, you know, and then it's just tragic. And there was this deal where they had the wounded, you know, Chickamauga, thousands come rolling in with wagons so every building like this was full of dying people and everybody there was trying to doctor people you know and it was just terrible so they would take some of these guys and say if it was here put them on the banks of little goose along the bank so they could have clean water Mm -hmm. you know and they're at least in tents and then this ice storm came in and I, i read about this and the grandmother was in, she was 16 years old helping this nurse. And this huge ice storm came in and just, the rivers just took all those guys and people are fishing them out. Wow. And the head nurse, the doctor just went home. He said, I can't, 
do anything. We just see what we got left in the morning. And she said, bull. And it became an ice storm. She tore down the ramparts, like walls for fortifications, and lit huge fires, put liquor in cornmeal to feed the mules to get them to pull the ramparts down mm -hmm. to give them energy and for the soldiers that were helping. And they, they would heat up bricks and put it in the bed of the wounded. Right. Keep so that warm. was kind of cool yeah. to read about yeah. that. That's fantastic. Some, fantastic. A lot of heroic stuff going yeah. on. And then they wanted to arrest her. Right. You know, for tearing down the fortification. <laughs> yep. <laughs> she ended up leading the Army of the Potomac down Pennsylvania Avenue during the review of the Army, you know, because mm. Grant and Sherman thought so much of her. But wow. you know, I'm trying to go with this story through grassroots like I did where the rivers yeah. run north. That's awesome. People can relate to these people. Yeah. Absolutely. You, I, I do want to hit on this, and I, you can, you can spoil it for us because I just had got to um, the PK rodeos in the introduction of Bob Tate as a kid, and you just mentioned this little boy becoming a businessman. Um, Bob Tate, um, I just want because you met him, right? Oh yeah, yeah. we were great friends. Um, he told great stories. Yeah, uh, my wife and I were going to get married out there at the Tate place. Um, we, I got to know Dick Tate really well. And I actually grew up next to, um, Hardy. Um, sure. but Dick, I, f I have a feeling a Dick, family. uh, I feel like Richard was like Bob and I don't, uh, maybe you can relate on that. But, uh, anyways, um, I just want to hear a little bit about Bob Tate. Cause like Richard oh, Tate was, was a Richard Tate was, Oh my gosh, he was hilarious. Oh, um, Dickie Tate was, <laughs> He was hilarious. And he was a smart guy. Dickie and Hardy are twins. Yep. And there's Mimi and Tommy. That was the family. And Eileen was the sweetest woman in the world. Bob was just this huge personality, flim-flam man. Where you get where he goes to Burma? His dad sold horses to the remount of these big colonels. So when war broke out, Bob Tate is in a bad place in India going through... You know, they were supposed to have mules, and some submarine wiped out the ship with all the mules on them. So they brought horses over, and he runs in in a tent. You can imagine how homesick he'd be from Sheridan, Wyoming. Yeah. It's such a remote place back then. And yeah. he's in Burma, India, and he walks in this tent, and there's Jig Yellowtail from Hardin, who he knew through horses, <laughs> trading horses, and uh, Lee Dunning who was in charge of the whole remount. So they had this big reunion, and they were making liquor in this place in Burma because Lee had the grain for the hops because he ran the stables for the remount. Right. So you got your grain for the liquor, and then Jig Yellowtail ran the kitchen. So he had the sugar. <laughs> and they were making <laughs> This is great stories. And then Bob was sitting on a thing, and he said they had an idea of parachuting mules in. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, which was about like Hitler's idea to j jump these strong cream of the German army out of planes with no parachutes. He thought that'd be a good idea, and that didn't work either. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 they had parachuted mules into Burma, and he said it was terrible. There was mules stuck up in trees. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work, and their legs, it was, it was a mess. So Bob was sitting there, and this colonel comes by that knew Bob's father and knew Bob as a little boy and he said Tate what do you think of this 
And he goes, I think it's a bunch of, I can't repeat on the radio what he said. And he said, how'd you like to come to work with me? So he had all these officers playing polo in World War II mm-hmm. and got these crip jobs. I mean, he went in as a private and he went out as a private because he was always in trouble. <laughs> he was the sharpest man. He could tell you in 1941, there was a horse race on July 3rd. And he goes, I had a horse that looked just like this other horse. So I switched them and hid the one in the stall because they had horse racing up at the Sheridan track, yep. like regular racing. And as the Indian relay races have proven, people love to watch a horse race, you know, or a foot race. Yep. You get the two fastest kids in school and go out after school, everybody's going to be there because <laughs> everybody likes a race. It's just something about, so he was running these races for these wealthy people that lived here back then. It was kind of like it's getting now. And... He was doing all kinds of deals, but he was hilarious. I mean, he would he would tell you, you know, I switched this horse and bet on him, and then it wasn't the horse. Like, the, yeah, he put a, it had a star, and and he won the race and just ran the horse right out of the track into the stall with both doors shut at the fairground. It yep, was the first him. year. <laughs> Pulled the other horse out that was already in there and he had his groom running around the stall with three blankets on in the summer so it'd be all sweaty. Brought it out, got the wind pitcher and he said I was at the either the Golden Steer, which doesn't exist anymore, the Sheridan Inn and he told the owner, he said, you know if I was you I'd just retire this mare and breeder now. He goes, that's a good idea. <laughs> and they don't even that have was a Bob, clue. He was bigger than life. Told and he would tell three stories at the same time. Yeah. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd kick in a story he was talking to you about yesterday, you know, and he'd go, yeah, hey, yeah, that, that owner, he just retired that mare. And then, yeah, that one guy on the polo field, he'd, he'd look at me and say, hey, you shouldn't be here. And then I'd, I'd tell you, and then, yeah, Eileen's dad, he was a Norwegian up on Otter Creek, you know, and he would go on like that for hours. <laughs> And you'd go and look this stuff up in the microfilm in the library, and he was spot on. Yep. You know, Joe Medicine Crow was another one. That guy was way entertaining. I mean, I went up and got to be friends with him, and uh, he was hilarious because Sean Reelbird told me, he said, you need to talk to uh, Joe Medicine Crow about the three crow that got killed on horses for shooting those horses. Mm-hmm. It was bad medicine. They told him, you cannot kill a horse. You know, that's that's right. against Indian religion. You can't do that. And um and he said and within a year they all died yeah. from horse related injuries. Wow. Those three guys. And I looked two of them up and it was true. Yeah, it's in like your book. Was horse yeah. Ra- yeah, I put it in there. But the whole funny part was I went up to meet Joe and I talked to him and I said, Hey Joe, tell me about the tell me about when they killed the horses on rotten grass. And he goes, Only a white man will kill a horse. <laughs> We don't kill horses. I go, yeah, well, what about the three Indians that died from horses right after they shot the horses? He goes, who told you that? I said, Sean Railbird. And he goes, okay, so there's these three Indians. <laughs> and he knew their names. You know, they were. He, I've got the names in the yep, book. Yep. But it was a fascinating story. And, and Joe had a great memory, too. 
And he tells these great stories about World War II, and he was, you know. Yeah. That's fascinating. You, you know who you should get on here is Kennard Reelbird. Okay. He's hilarious. He used to do the announcing at the Wire Rodeo. Oh, that's and right. And they shut him down because he was too, he was telling politically incorrect jokes. <laughs> Half the people. That's like why me. the announcing has gotten bad. I, I thought been he was thinking that. I was like, man, what happened the to the Wire Rodeo that? board? You listen to me. They put, set Kennard Reelbird yes. free. Because he said, I like telling stories, but they told me not this. <laughs> So oh, the last on. year, he goes, I like telling stories, but I like, he said, they told me not to tell any more stories. He said, but I like telling stories. Yep. He goes, but I like getting paid better, so I'm not going <laughs> to tell any stories. Oh, yeah, we should have him on. He's an artist, great. too. Oh, okay. Yeah. That'd yeah. be great, yeah. A very clever man, very entertaining. I mean, he tells those Politically incorrect jokes. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah. He can I just mean, talk, he spares nobody. Yeah. Indians, yep. whites, anybody. women, <laughs> gays, blacks, Jews. He gets everybody. Yep. I mean, he's, and he's, it's all in the name of humor, for gosh sake. I was going to say, that's right. a good comedian if you're hitting oh, them all. Oh, my gosh. That's oh, good. He hits them all. Yeah. He might hit them all in the same time, too. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fair. <laughs> I had, I freaking had a question about polo, Zach, and now I forgot. Um, oh. He's, can I tell a joke? Yeah, I tell absolutely. One of the joke. He said they had a um, convention on the paranormal and and uh, crow agency, and he said they were very interested. And he said there was a room full of. He said that the crow are very superstitious people. He said there's a room. It's Kennard Reelbird story, not mine. He said they're in the in the room with like 200 people, and they're all for this. They got the leading paranormal expert from Harvard University, and and they came in and they said he's telling this to 500 people at the Wire Rodeo, 5,000. Yeah. And he said uh, he looked at the he looked at the crowd and said, "Wow, this is a good crowd." And he goes, "Has anybody here ever seen a ghost?" And he said, a hundred people raised their hand. And he said, that's a outstanding. He goes, has anybody here ever spoken to a ghost? And he said, 50 people raised their hand. He goes, you've spoken to a ghost. That's, that's outstanding. He said, has anybody here ever made love to a ghost? And he said, this one old white sheep herder in the back of the room came up. And he said, uh, sir, come down here. Tell us. What was it like to make love to a ghost? And he said, what? A ghost? I thought you said a goat. <laughs> Those Basque sheep herders, man. What are you going to do? <laughs> he told that at the rodeo? <laughs> 5,000 people, and that was I, a tame one. That, yeah. <laughs> he probably got the crowd roaring with yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah, half of them. Yeah, right. The other half wrote letters to the paper. Yeah. Never go to another road. Yeah, as long right. As they lived. <laughs> oh my and then he just turned up the heat. Yeah, it just <laughs> made him worse. Yeah. We should have him on, Zach. That'd yeah. be great. That'd be oh, awesome. yeah. And, uh, you know, Martin McCarty would be interesting, too, The runs the NX bar. That play, I'm mean, not yep. the NX bar, the Flying H. Yep, the Flying and H. Brian is yep. the NX next bar mm -hmm. definitely definitely um you could get greg with his wrecks you know he's the only guy that ever lived that had a runaway down main street in bighorn and <laughs> horse went through wilson moreland's garage 
and he had a tourist girl on the back. <laughs> <laughs> I actually never been on a horse in her life. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Greg was just full of Wyoming uh, whiskey. And uh, unfortunately, the closest horse that he could show off to this girl for was on the back of the horse trailer that no one would ever dare ride outside of a arena because he was a dead runaway. Oh. And a great big brown horse. And of course, he got on it and was trying to ride it in the bar and then in the Bozeman Trail and back in the last chance. And, you know, the horses spinning around just getting madder and madder. And she's like, can I pet it? And this horse is mad and just running in place, and snarling. Greg's got double white knuckles holding yeah. <laughs> sitting up straight. And somebody threw her on behind Greg, and she just clamped with her legs behind the saddle, and that horse went off down Main Street, oh, a bighorn. And where the S-curve leaves, heading south, that horse just ran right down Wilson Moreland's driveway. And he heard Greg <laughs> yelling, Duck! Duck! <laughs> there's, there's a shoeing stand and a furnace, and that horse went through there 100 miles an hour. But unfortunately, the back of the garage was open into a pasture. And that's what that horse was looking at. Yep. But nobody, including the horse or Greg or the tourist girl had never ridden before, and they're at a dead run, hit a wire gate on the other side. Oh, jeez. It was on the back of the garage, and the horse flipped end over end, and... Wilson Moreland was coming home from the bar, and he kind of saw him, you know, streak by him. And they went out there. <laughs> Greg was in. <laughs> Greg, Greg was <laughs> up to his eyebrows in Mary's turnip patch. <laughs> the girl was unconscious. Yeah. in the field and the horse was knocked out and so some, somebody went and got Brian out of the bar and had him go tell him hey your brother just got in a bad wreck and Greg's, Greg's doing the old cowboy resuscitation on her he's got her head in his lap he's fanning her with his hat <laughs> I guess she eventually came out of it you know luckily but um, wow. he's quite a character too that's funny yeah that's all. Uh, that's that's great stuff. stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, Sam, uh, if no one's read where the rivers run north, I mean, you gave us kind of like a summary, but like when you got it done and you're giving it to Ski Johnson, like what was your like, um, that you were hoping, or like what was the theme you were hoping he would take away from it? Um, I know like he kind of wanted it from that polo perspective and stuff like that, but what was kind of your hope when you were done? Well, like his wasn't really polo. He's a very historically minded person also. And okay. he just wanted to get all these people's history before they passed away. And there's, there's people I interviewed in there that are, there's probably I, the last time I counted was the probably at least 30 people okay. that aren't alive anymore. Right. And thanks to his vision, we got their story, you know, and people were so nice to me and so forgiving, you know, there was misspelled names in there. There was, you know, I'm misspelling people's fan and you just cringe. And then you also worry when you're writing it. I mean, I, I had the residents of Sheridan in mind because I got so much extra stuff like the wallop letters. So, and I knew Ski was good. He's a friend of mine and I knew he was good with it. So I wasn't too worried about that, but I wanted the people I was writing about to be happy. And first and foremost, him, really, that I'd done a good job or what something. Mm -hmm. And 
it got some minor awards, but the main thing was that, that, um, you know, like D Dunning and Irv Alderson, the day it came out, we, we had a party at the Bozeman trail gallery and it was the first night of the rodeo. And I go, you guys better take off. You're going to miss the rodeo. And they go, we're not going to the rodeo. We're going to the mint, celebrate this book coming out. And that meant so much to me. Mm. And I don't know they probably wanted to go to the rodeo, but that was so nice, you know. And Irv, I was, I called Irv up. I go, what am I going to name this book? And he just said, call it Where the Rivers Run North. I go, oh, my God, that easy, you know. <laughs> I, I'd been floundering around with these horrible titles. And it's such a cool title. I yeah, can't take yeah. any credit for it. Right. You know, he named it, and, and he's a... He's an interesting guy on his own. There's another guy you should get, you know. He was the Bones Brothers Ranch up in... Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. His dad was Little Bones, and then there was a Big Bones, and then the other, the three brothers, the other one was an actor in in Hollywood. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's another in it. There's there's so many neat stories. A book wrote itself. I just put them together. Yeah. And it was something I enjoy doing, too. So I'm reading about George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, and just in the context of this one family that's stuck on the frontier after, you know, the British went in to move the French out of where Pittsburgh is. It was called Fort Duquesne. And they had about 2,000 soldiers, and there was only about 400 French, but they had about 600 Indians with them from about... 12 different tribes. Sure. And they just kept giving them stuff, guns, and just to keep them around. Well, they said, let's just surrender the fort when the British got close. And this one French officer said, let me take these guys out and see if we can at least fight them. Let's not just, because if we leave, those Indians will never back us again. Right. So the tribes, and they went out and destroyed the British. I mean, they killed... 900 out of 1,400, you know, the casualty rate is crazy. And they're, of course, they're marching 12 breast down a road. And those, and they had all the ammo, they, 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 the, the warriors and these French trappers. And they said, shoot the officers on the horses first. And they just, they, they, they killed 86 out of 113 officers. Whoa. George Washington had three bullet holes through his coat. The general, who was a, a head of the whole troops in America for the English, he was shot. He had five horses shot out from under him. You know, so it was a bloodbath. And now the British have been just disgraced. And now the French and Indians just said, let's go kill every settler on the... Because that used to be the Delaware's land, but, you know, the other guys are... We can go in a cabin, mm-hmm. free stuff. Right. Move these guys back off the coast and get our land back, you know. Fight each other again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so did you uh, just finished up a, a book tour for that or you're getting ready to go on a book tour? For- no, I'm I'm just finished the first draft and I'm hoping to turn it into a publisher in this fall. Okay. Okay. So the first one is about that family gets on a boat to come to America. Yeah. Because what they did with these Scots, they knew they'd fight. They knew they were ambitious. They were workers. They would give them free land out past the treaty line and didn't bother to tell them. They did the same thing to them in Ireland. They were having trouble with the Irish, and they told the Scots, we're either going to hang you because you're professional thieves, or you can go to Ireland. We'll give you free land. And they knew what would happen. Yeah. You know? (laughs) They would clear out the Irish troublemakers. Mm-hmm. And so they used them for that, you know. Um, Interesting. The, the, first they shipped them to Spain. 
um, when they were in when they were in Scotland, and and the Spanish envoy to you know London said, "You got to get these guys out of our country. <laughs> They're destroying <laughs> our country." Well, then it goes back to the the Ninth Legion of Romans when the Romans crossed over the water and took over England. They got as far as Scotland. And and the Ninth Legion just disappeared. Mm-hmm. They never found out what happened to them. So they just built a wall from coast to coast, just keep them up there. Right. right. So these are the same people years later, yep. you know, and they still kept that mentality. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. Well, we'll be yeah. looking forward to that if it's if it's done by the fall. No rush. But uh, <laughs> um, Zach, did you have any other questions for him? No, um, I didn't. Yeah. Um, well, Sam, are you back then in the summer? What are you looking forward to this summer? Finishing this book. You know, I've got my kid with me. He's getting ready to go to college in, in uh, Tennessee. And so um, I'm just, I'm riding and I'm also doing horse's teeth. Yeah. So. Awesome. And then enjoying the Wyoming summer. and Yeah, I love it here. Yeah. It's not a better place on earth. And I, I get around, at least America. So. Yeah. You know, I know what's here. I know what you have here. And people, you know, to the, a, a nice footnote to, to say is, I mean, um, to the people here, to the tribute to the people in this county, and more specifically, Ski Johnston told me, he said, you know, I can leave my ranch on a Monday morning after a weekend in Bighorn and drive to Sheridan and I don't see one McDonald's cup. I don't see one wrapper. I don't see a bottle on the side of the road. He goes, I can leave my place in Tennessee and both sides of the road's trash on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. The people here have take pride in their stuff. And that speaks volumes for the people here, you know. Um, I hope they keep that. Yeah. You know, uh, and I said, it's not because people aren't throwing trash. <laughs> You know, there's still people that are going to do that, but there's people that I know there's a lady in Bighorn that I, if, I wish I knew her name. She's out there every Sunday morning, both sides of the road, just on her own, mm-hmm. all the way up past her place. She's not just doing it in front of her house, but that's that's a tribute to this area. You guys have kept it beautiful, you know. Yeah. yeah. I try and get, put that onto my son, you know. We walk by garbage all the time, and I pick it up, and even in strange cities, and I'll say, we didn't we didn't drop it, but we're gonna pick it up. I go, you know why? And he's like, I'm gonna hear this again because <laughs> we're the good guys. Yep, right. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's a good place to end, Zach. I, I think. think. So. Yeah. Well, Sam, thanks for coming by. Thanks for kind of talking about where the rivers run north and your new books coming out. You know, your multiple works you've got. It'll going be on. called American Annandale, and you can get the Wing Spur hard copy at the Bighorn Junction. Okay, it's on sale. Okay. There you go. Perfect. For anybody there listening, go get it. <laughs> well, thanks again, Sam, for coming by. We we had a blast, and hopefully you had a blast. Yeah, and- thanks so much for having me. That was fun. <laughs> it's a really neat place you have here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have to have you on again maybe when the, the next one's out. So Absolutely. thanks, Sam. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.